Okay, welcome everybody. This is the first episode of F1 Therapist, not to be confused with F1 Therapy. This, these are the episodes where I review what Nick has done on his own, um, digest his verbal diarrhea, as he calls it, and offer some rebuttals, corrections, omissions, whatever I feel needs to be addressed. Um, just for the record, I am not a licensed therapist in any way. The title comes because Nick tends to treat me as more of a therapist when it, on F1 topics than anything else. Um, let's say casual guy talk that helps him uh, wind the cuckoo back into the clock, if you will. Those of you who have listened to the episodes probably got the same feeling I did that... Uh, Maybe he needs to uh, take a deep breath every once in a while and have a chat with somebody a little more impartial. That being said, let's get into it. You've heard Nick refer to me several times on the podcast. Um, My name is Sean Medeiros. Just a little bit of background on myself. I am an automotive engineer. Um, I think Nick has mentioned that before as well. My approach to F1 and life in general is somewhat opposite of Nick's. I am very data-driven. I like to look at the analytics and make decisions based off of what I see. So that is what you will get from the discussions that him and I have. When we talk about F1, it will be a lot of Nick describing his gut reactions and feelings and me providing data to either tell him he's right or most times to show him that he needs to take another look at it. So with that being said, I'd like to apologize for not being around in the first few episodes and leaving Nick to his own devices to um, put those episodes out and force you guys to, to listen to his ranting. I do want to address a couple of things um, before we get into it. Like I said, I am a an engineer and I am very data-driven, but Nick is also a data-driven person in the background, let's say. Let's say he's a very emotional person. He likes to speak what's on top of his mind all the time. But when you get down to it, he does understand the numbers. Nick is actually the one that taught me calculus in college so that I could pass and become an engineer. Um, he's also extremely hyperbolic. I know the latest episode he claims to have hundreds of billions of followers, and I don't think anybody necessarily believes that, but obviously take what he says with a grain of salt. Uh, so... My part of this podcast is basically to try and keep Nick honest, try and keep the train on the track and keep it moving in a a direction where we can actually discuss and come to reasonable conclusions on the current state of F1 and where we would like to see it go. Whether or not that's a popular opinion with anybody else doesn't really matter. Um, We're here to offer an opinion, a lot of times a counter-opinion to what the current narrative is, and we'll go from there. 
So I'd like to take this time in the podcast to address some of the mistakes that um, I've noticed in the episodes that Nick has put out. Those of you who have listened to them all have probably noticed that Nick has an extreme hatred for three people in particular. Nico Hulkenberg, Kevin Magnuson, and Gunther Steiner, in no particular order. I think it's very clear from the first few episodes that um, he absolutely cannot stand these people. His attacks on them are very rambling and let's say singularly focused that being said I don't necessarily disagree with some of his comments but I think there are reasons why those people are around in Formula One today or maybe have left Formula One recently so I'd like to provide some input on that so Nico Hulkenberg Nick goes off on Nico Hulkenberg quite a lot and especially in the latest episode has said that he would prefer to see Nico retire in disgrace without a podium as a result of the conversations that he's put out into the universe I don't agree with that I think Nico serves a purpose I think he belongs on the grid he has had an extremely long career in the current sense of F1's driver careers. He made it to F1 as a result of having an extremely promising junior career. And we'll get into this on another episode, but I've started analyzing all the drivers' performances from their junior careers into F1, the circumstances around them getting into F1 and who they are in general. And Nico was a no-brainer to get to F1. He had all the performance. He put in all the work. He's got all the credentials of a potential F1 driver. His early career, like most drivers' early careers, are plagued by being stuck in uncompetitive hardware, non-competitive hardware. Uh, That being said, he did have a couple of reasonable years in cars that were not terrible, um, primarily the years he spent with Force India. Force India was not a, a high-end team, but they did. They were not a bottom-tier team either. They were able to stay off the bottom, despite their financial issues. Um, and when he ended up at Renault, that, afford- that unfortunately went uh, south for him in a big way but that seems to be the way that Renault has been going since their latest inception um, when Lotus returned to the grid Uh, those of you that aren't aware Renault did very well with Fernando Alonso then transitioned to Lotus and back to Renault and back to Lotus again and into Renault and now Alpine. Ultimately, they haven't been very competitive since their time with Fernando Alonso and winning the the Drivers' and Constructors' Championship with him. Um, So, Nico Hülkenberg's career really went from mediocre to bad at that point 
which ultimately resulted in him losing his seat and taking a few years out, acting as a, a super sub. And Nick and I will dis disagree on his performances as a sub. Um, but ultimately, it was good enough to keep his name floating around the paddock so that he could come back and a seat for Haas when they needed an experienced driver to fill the gap that they thought they had with the rookie drivers. So, where does that leave him now? I think with the credentials he has and his career, it really was the best option that Haas had, not wanting to have a rookie driver in, in the seat and everybody else, frankly, being too expensive for a team that doesn't want to pay up to the cost cap. Nico Hulkenberg was the best option. Yes, he's never got a podium, but he is a consistent points finisher when you look at the data across his career. So, if you give him a car that is better than the 2022 car and you believe can score points, there's no reason to assume that Nico couldn't score points. So, that's where I stand on Nico, and we'll we'll get into the analytics on another episode. The other one was Kevin Magnuson, and I had a couple of problems with Nick's hatred of Kevin Magnuson. Now, I don't particularly believe he is a good driver, um, and the data, frankly, supports that. It's not that he doesn't deserve to be an F1. Obviously, he's a competent driver. He's put in work in the Junior Series and in F1 in itself. Um, ultimately, I think that Kevin is replaceable, and potentially he was a bad choice to go for with Haas, but he was a known entity. And from an engineering and a management standpoint, I can understand that um, there's less risk involved in taking Kevin than taking a more experienced driver that you don't have history with. So, that being said, I think Kevin Magnuson is generally disliked amongst the paddock. The dislike is played up in shows like Drive to Survive and on the, the TV broadcasting coverage. They want to brand him as the, the bad boy of F1 and that everybody on the grid has a problem with him. And to some extent that's true, but ultimately they are all professionals and they can all work together. Um, but he really... He doesn't, uh, he doesn't have the same pedigree, let's say, as even Nico. So in my mind... I could take him or leave him. I understand why Haas have kept him there, but it wouldn't surprise me if uh, if K-Mag goes away in the next couple of years. Now, on to what I think will be the, the most fun one to discuss with Nick once we finally do an episode together. Gunther Steiner. Nick has nothing but hatred for Gunther, because he feels that he is solely responsible for the failure of Mick Schumacher's career. And I will give it to Nick. Gunther did destroy Schumacher's career. 
but it wasn't solely Gunther. Now, Gunther is a professional motorsports management talent. For those of you who don't know about Gunther, he studied to be an engineer, never got his degree, went to work in the World Rally Championship as a mechanic, eventually found his way into managing World Rally Championship teams, finally ending up at Ford as their director of engineering. And from there, he was headhunted by none other than Nicky Lauda to be the team principal for Jaguar. So Ford owned Jaguar at the time. Jaguar was starting a F1 F1 team, which, if my memory serves me correctly, came out of the purchase of Stuart F1. So Stuart sold to Jaguar. Jaguar needed someone to run it. Nicky Lauda, everybody who understands F1 knows who Nicky Lauda is. He needs no introduction. One of the greatest F1 minds around put his faith in Gunther to run the Jaguar F1 team. Now, the team was uncompetitive, they didn't do very good, and they quickly decided that this was not an opportunity that they wanted to continue in, and Dietrich Mateschitz came along, purchased the team, rebranded it as Red Bull, and in 2005, Christian Horner and Gunther Steiner ran the team together. So Gunther was there at the beginning of Red Bull Racing. Again, not that they were very competitive, but he was there on the bottom, on the ground floor with Christian getting the team ready for what they would eventually become. After one year of that, Gunther was moved to the U.S. He was offered a position to go run the NASCAR teams for Red Bull in the U.S., and he decided that that was what he wanted to pursue. So he did that, eventually starting his own composites company in the United States, which is still running today, I believe. So he's doing okay for himself despite being fired. Um, and then eventually returning to the grid with Haas F1. So, yes, he is a large personality, and Nick seems to have a an objection to his let's say, cult of personality that Drive to Survive has pushed. And yes, he is a very memeable person. So that's what I think rubs Nick the wrong way about it. But ultimately, you can't deny that he has a presence. He's made a name for himself. And his career has shown that he is a management talent who knows how to work with people. Now... Haas hasn't performed, and you can say, and Gunther says it himself as well, that he is the top of the ladder and the buck stops with him. He's responsible for their successes and their failures. So you can say that he is solely responsible for the failures of Haas up to this point. And I don't think he would disagree with that. Uh, but that being said, even to the point where he is responsible for the team, he is still at the whim of Gene Haas. And Gene Haas is a, a 
motorsports enthusiast who obviously runs a number of different teams across NASCAR series and whatnot, and thought that he wanted to get into F1. Now, I think Haas, if nothing else, is a product of perfect timing. They were the last team in before the Concord agreements expired. They were the last team in before we started getting into this anti-dilution um, prize money fund. And this is the topic of Andretti Motorsport and what they've had to pay and what they've had to put up to even apply to be a team. Haas didn't have to go through that. Haas simply had to fill out a an application, prove that they could do the basic work, and they're in. They have a, a shoestring budget and have since day one. And Gunther even admitted that if they had to do what Andretti had to do today, they would not be on the grid. Right? So they got lucky in the sense that they filled that 10th team spot before the door closed. If you tell me that Andretti's application to be an F1 team is not good enough for F1, they don't add value, they don't have any added value in coming to F1, and F1 will simply add to their value, I'll call bullshit on that. Um, I do firmly agree with Nick that Andretti would be a better option than Haas. That being said... Haas is on the grid. They got in before these conditions were in place, so they have a place on the grid and they deserve to be there, despite the fact that they simply do not want to spend up to the cost cap. Um, with the amount of sponsorship that they have and have been able to pull in and everything around Haas, I'd say they're one of the most publicized backmarkers that I've ever seen in F1. No other team that routinely finishes on the bottom, as far as I'm aware, have had such of a cult following. So I don't buy that Gene Haas and the sponsors, MoneyGram, Palm Angel, all the sponsors they've had over the years that they've been involved, can't put in the $145 million that it takes to get to the budget cap. I think the number was they were 10 or 15 million under the budget cap, which is a ridiculous amount of money for the late for people like us who aren't millionaires or billionaires or F1 team owners, but in the scope of F1, spending 10 million dollars isn't anything. So why couldn't they get there and what you know everybody else is scrimping to make sure they stay under the cost cap and Haas is scrimping to pay as little as possible and then they get angry when they don't have the results right so that's that's something that I think will start to flesh itself out in the next little while is does the investment come to the team are they willing to spend up to that cost cap we'll see um, I think with Ayo Komatsu in, in charge now, having to report to Gene. He's a relatively untested entity in the sense that he's never been a team principal. 
He seems to be a very reasonable engineer, has a fairly calm head on his shoulders. We'll see how he does, and frankly, I wish him all the best. Um, he's got some big shoes to fill, replacing Gunther Steiner. I think the, the Haas fans will probably turn on him a bit because he's simply not Gunther. But we will we will let 2024 unfold and see what happens to him. And who knows? I mean, given Gunther's um, personality and the, the cult following he has and his history with the sport, it wouldn't surprise me if we see him back on the grid at some point in the near future. So, Nick's latest episode, I've noticed a lot of, um, let's say, off-the-cuff remarks that were potentially not uh, well, well thought through during the recording of that. I'll address a couple of them here, where um, he talks about street tracks and F1 having too many street tracks. I don't. I don't necessarily like too many street tracks. I don't think we should go the route of Indy or Formula E. But some of the street tracks we have are well worth it. And a lot of the a lot of the tracks that uh, have a lot of cult following to them are hybrid tracks or tracks that have been highly adopted from street circuits. For those that have watched F1 for a while, racing at the Nürburgring, the Nordschleife, the long version of the Nürburgring, not the Grand Prix track, used to be public road. It's no longer public, but used to be. Spa was a public road that got turned into a racetrack. Canada, and the circuit Gilles Villeneuve, is not a public road per se, that they're not shutting down roads in the city of Montreal, but it is a road on the island in Montreal that is open to the public. It's not a closed, purpose-built racetrack. It's more of a hybrid-type track. And then we have tracks like Melbourne, which are hybrid tracks as well. Part of it is in a park, part of it is city streets. So these are all tracks that are well regarded in the F1 family as being fun, exciting tracks to drive. Right? So I think we have to take it with a bit of a grain of salt to say that street tracks are boring. No, they have the potential like any track to be good, but they need to be properly designed. Some of the errors in Nick's uh, recording, I'll just address quickly here. Abu Dhabi is a purpose-built track. It is not a street track. It is not a hybrid track. Qatar, same thing. It is a purpose-built track, not a hybrid or a street track. Um, he went on a, to me, troubling rant about the Saudis and Aramco and Petronas and whatnot. Um, obviously, there are there's been a lot of talk about sports washing with Saudi Arabia, and I have my, my feelings on that, and we'll keep them off of here for now. Um, but the mistake that uh, I think Nick made is Petronas is not a Saudi 
company. Patronus is a Malaysian company. And then unrelated to tracks or Saudis and oil companies, um, he made the comment that Mark Webber is training Oscar Piastri. Mark Webber is not training Oscar Piastri. They may do some physical training together, but Mark Webber is Piastri's manager. That's a very different relationship. A lot of the training for Oscar came through Alpine and the money that they invested in getting him into older F1 cars, getting him into different tracks, and letting him drive these cars until he was comfortable with F1 machinery. Yes, it's not the current machinery. It's not the latest ground effect cars that he's driving in 2023 and onwards but they are f1 machinery they are extremely fast high downforce high powered cars on proper f1 tracks some of them maybe not um, current f1 tracks for example i believe he did some testing in a an older renault car at port mao so the idea for alpine was get him as much F1 relevant experience as possible within the rules of the testing regulations because obviously they can't test this year's car or even last year's car they have to step it back a bit to keep it fair um, well at least that's what they claim so Mark Weber isn't involved in that side of it per se other than contractually um, from a management standpoint anyway Minor topics, but we'll get into drivers and especially young drivers and how they qualify and what what the current ladder to F1 does as far as letting them down in their careers. On the topics of on the topic of racetracks, I do want to address some of the boring tracks and who designed them. So Herman Tilke is a F former F1 driver and engineer who designed a number of renovations to tracks as well as a number of the current tracks that we race on. And some of you may have heard his name before, referred to as Tilke or Herman Tilke or the Tilke tracks. And mainly you hear his name when they talk about Bahrain or Yas Marina because they're boring tracks right? everybody says okay well they're just kind of straight lines with right hand corners and not a lot of not a lot of soul not a lot of entertainment value to it it's how fast can you get and then slow you right down and make a right hand turn that is a little unfair I do agree that tracks like Yas Marina and Bahrain are relatively boring but at the same time, Tilke is responsible for taking the old Osterreich ring and creating the A1 ring, which has now been turned into the Red Bull ring as part of the Austrian Grand Prix. That is a very interesting track. That's a track that he was that Tilke was involved with from a renovation standpoint, and I think the job is well done. Now Nick will take this as proof that it's complete garbage. He is also responsible for the redesign of Hockenheim to take it from what it was in the 90s to what it is currently. And now that it's not on the, in the F1 calendar anymore, doesn't matter. He's also um, done 
overhauls to the circuit to Catalonia in Barcelona, which personally I like the track. I think it's an interesting track to drive. I think it provides some level of entertainment, but it does seem to be a mixed bag. He's also responsible for overhauls to Nürburgring, mainly the GP tracks. And those are three examples of tracks that people would say he ruined. On the other hand, one of the more beloved tracks from the older drivers on the F1 circuit is Fuji. And he is responsible for the renovations that happened at Fuji to make it what it is today. On top of that, he's designed the circuit in Sepang in Malaysia, as well as Istanbul, Valencia Street Course, and probably his best courses, in my opinion, are Yas Marina, sorry, not Yas Marina, Marina Bay in Singapore, and Circuit of the Americas in Austin, Texas. Those are Tilke design tracks that are that don't fit the stereotype that he's been accused of. And he has designed more. He designed Korea, he designed Buddha. So there are other tracks, they're just less known, so I won't mention those too much. So in general, his resume is a bit of a mixed bag. He catches a lot of flack for the boring tracks, and he doesn't get any credit for the tracks that he's done well, let's say. So, that's where we stand on some of the uh, corrections and, let's say, omissions from Nick's rants. Coming up in the near future, Nick and I will be sitting down together to record a podcast of F1 Philosophy. Again, this is F1 Therapist, and me providing some feedback and analysis to to Nick's F1 therapy sessions and philosophy will be the two of us having a more structured conversation about what we see coming up for 2024 and onwards as well as looking back and analyzing past F1 seasons and talking about the the F1 grid past current future drivers and actually sitting down and looking at data to properly analyze, do they, deser- do they deserve to be on track? Why were they chosen as F1 drivers? And what does it mean moving forward? And what kind of metric can we put, um, specifically, what kind of metric can we put to quick? If, if you've listened to Nick's episodes, he has an episode to, dedicated to what does quick mean? Right. Don't listen to the. Don't just look at the stopwatch. It's more than just a lap time. Um, and I think that was an episode where I tended to agree with a lot of the things that he said. Um, the way that he says them is obviously very heated and passionate. But in general, he's not wrong. A lap time doesn't tell you much because a bad driver in a fantastic car can give you a good lap time. You do need to be able to develop the car. And I think what Nick missed on that episode is simply what is it that's needed in a driver to get there. And him and I have had some good conversations on that, so I won't go into it too much here because I want to have that conversation on the record with him. I think it is a good um, discussion to listen to once we get there. And yeah, we'll try to not 
bore the listeners with too much data analysis. Um, as I mentioned at the top of the episode, I am a very data-driven person. I do a lot of statistics analysis in my day-to-day life for my career and otherwise. So I've taken this as a point to uh, kind of stick it to Nick a little bit and prove that uh, some of the people he loves aren't as great as he thinks they are. And some of the people that he hates and thinks don't deserve to be an F1 at all actually deserve to be here more than some of the people he loves. So we'll get into all that data, hopefully not in too much of painstaking detail. But I think it'll be an interesting uh, learning experience for him and I to go through the data and, you know, maybe those people who listen to the episode long enough to get to the actual conclusion will learn a thing or two about data analysis and maybe stop listening to some of the the commentators on Sky or F1 app um, and be able to make an educated decision about who are the proper people on the grid and who deserves to be there and who's a pay driver and simply is there to fill a, a hole in a budget. We'll see how all that pans out in the coming episodes. Thank you for listening and hope to hear uh, or hope to be with you guys for a little while longer. Thank you. Bye.